Welcome to Music History Monday for October 25th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Johannes Brahms and his Symphony No. 4. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the world premiere on October 25, 1885, 136 years ago today, of Johannes Brahms's fourth and final symphony. Performed by the superb Meiningen Court Orchestra, the performance was conducted by Brahms himself. It went well. We'll get to Herr Dr. Professor Brahms in a bit, but first, some gratuitous auto-backslapping. I began writing these Music History Monday posts in September 2016. That was when Melanie Smith, president of San Francisco Performances, for which I am the music historian in residence, asked me to write some sort of regular feature for San Francisco Performances' Facebook page. Here is the first paragraph of my very first post, a celebration of the birthday of Anton Diabelli, 1771-1858, as in Beethoven's Diabelli Variations. It's a post that appeared on September 5, 2016. Quote, Welcome to what will become a weekly feature here on the San Francisco Performances Facebook page, Music History Monday. As titles go, that's about as thrilling as Root Canal, but it is an accurate description of the feature's content, so run with it we will. Every Monday, I will dredge up some timely, perhaps intriguing, and even, if we are lucky, salacious chunk of musical information relevant to that date, or to San Francisco Performance's concert schedule, or to whatever. If, on rare occasion, these features appear a tad irreverent, well, that's okay. We would do well to remember that cultural icons do not create and make music, but rather, people do. And people can do and say the darndest things." Unquote. For our information, I began writing these Music History Monday posts a full two years before I signed on with Patreon. I will say, with no small bit of pride, deadly sin though it presumably may be, that I have not missed a single Monday since, making this my 267th consecutive Music History Monday post. Darned straight impressive, although please no questions as to whether or not I have a life. The five-year life of this post means a couple of things. First, in less than two years, I will begin my second cycle through Monday dates. Having already plucked the low-hanging topics from my first go-round, I'm going to have to work a bit harder to find date-appropriate topics to write about. Second, and on these same lines, it means that I've already covered a lot of topical ground. For example, on this day in 1838, 
183 years ago today, the composer Georges Alexander Caesar Leopold Bizet was born in Paris. I would love to write about Monsieur Bizet today, but I cannot, as my Music History Monday post for June 3rd, 2019 discussed his life and his death, which occurred on that date in 1875. On this day in 1925, Steinway Hall opened in New York City. Readers and podcast listeners of this post know that I consider the Steinway name and logo to be the single greatest American trade name and mark in existence, and so I'd welcome the opportunity to write about this greatest of American success stories. But no can do, as my Music History Monday post of March 5, 2018 already did so in marking the founding of the company on March 5, 1853. Other of my posts will also preempt what I can write here on Music History Monday. For example, on October 25th, 1953, 68 years ago today, Dmitry Shostakovich completed his Symphony No. 10. The symphony is nothing less than a personal celebration of the death of Joseph Stalin, who had died seven and a half months before, on March 5, 1953, and of Shostakovich's own survival of Stalin. Shostakovich's 10th symphony is an altogether amazing work. You know, we read that the word amazing is overused and should be avoided, but the hell with that, because it applies here in spades. And I would dearly love to write about the symphony today. But I cannot, as I already wrote about Shostakovich's Symphony No. 10 in my Dr. Bob Prescribes post of January 8, 2019. One last item before we get to a topic I have not yet written about, Brahms and his Fourth Symphony. This day in musical stupid. Well, it's not really stupid, but almost. On this day in 1964, 57 years ago today, the Rolling Stones appeared for the first time on The Ed Sullivan Show, live from New York. They performed Around and Around, and Time is on My Side. What is described as a riot broke out in the studio, as the screaming teeny boppers in attendance would not shut up, even during the other acts. Dear Mr. Sullivan, 1901 to 1974, was not pleased, and so he rashly declared for all to hear, quote, I promise you, they'll, meaning the Stones, never be back on our show again, unquote. Promises, like sports records, are made to be broken. Common sense and network ratings assured that, in fact, the Rolling Stones made five further appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show between 1965 and 1969. Johannes Brahms, 1833 to 1897. Johannes Brahms was a maddening mass of contradictions. As prickly as a cactus in his day-to-day -day dealings with the world, he was, nevertheless, a man of great modesty, 
with a heart of gold, who loved children and working people with whom he identified completely. A story. Brahms spent the summer of 1885 composing in the Austrian resort town of Murzuschlag. One day, a fire broke out in a carpenter's workshop on the ground floor of the building in which Brahms was staying. Brahms biographer Jan Swafford writes, quote, The 52-year-old Brahms ran from his workroom in shirt sleeves to join the bucket brigade to fight the fire, shouting at well-dressed passers-by to lend a hand. In the confusion, someone pulled him aside and told him that his papers were threatened by the blaze. Brahms thought it over for a second, then returned to the buckets. Brahms's friend, Richard Fellinger, finally extracted from him the key to his room and ran to save the manuscript score of the newly completed Fourth Symphony. When the fire was out, Brahms shrugged off the threat to his manuscript with, These poor people needed help more than I did. Unquote. Brahms then put his money where his mouth was and personally paid for rebuilding the carpenter's workshop where the fire had begun. As a composer, Johannes Brahms was a synthesist, a composer who synthesized the genres, forms, and compositional discipline of classicism with the melodic, harmonic, and expressive substance of Romanticism. Brahms's four symphonies, well, they lie at the core of the symphonic repertoire. Incredibly, they are works that might never have been composed because of events that took place in October of 1853, when Brahms was just 20 years old. It's a story that briefly must be told. The Curse On October 1st, 1853, Johannes Brahms, 20 years old, short, slim, blonde-haired and blue-eyed, with nary a whisker to be seen on what would become his famously bearded face, showed up at the door of Robert and Clara Schumann's house in the Rhineland city of Dusseldorf. Brahms had been on tour with a violinist named Edward Remenyi. Remenyi had dropped Brahms like a hot knockfirst when Brahms presumably disrespected the great Franz Liszt while they were in Weimar. Now young Brahms, with a recommendation from the famed violinist Josef Joachim, was hoping for an audience with Robert and Clara. He got a bit more than just that. He ended up staying with them for the next month. The Schumanns were absolutely knocked out by Brahms's music, and Robert not only saw to the immediate publication of a number of Brahms's works, but he wrote an article as well, which promptly ran in the important and influential magazine Neue Zeitschrift für Musik. In the article, Schumann introduced Brahms as the new German messiah of music, who would someday, and we quote Schumann, aim his magic wand where the massed might of choir and orchestra can lend its strength, and so present still more wonderful glimpses into the mysteries of the spirit world." Unquote. What Schumann said in his article, in essence, and this is how Brahms and the musical community of Germany took it, was that Johannes Brahms was the anointed one 
who would one day compose the worthy successor to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Of course, what Schumann actually did was scare the bejesus out of the 20-year-old Brahms and induce a symphonic writer's block that would last for the next 23 years. That's right, with the lofty expectations of Schumann and the derisive snickers of the moderns like Wagner ringing in his ears, it took Brahms 21 years to complete his first symphony, a work he began around 1855 and did not finally release until 1876. True to form and as expected, friends and foes alike promptly refer to it as Beethoven's Tenth. For Brahms, the act of finally completing and releasing his Symphony No. 1 had a remarkably cathartic effect. With the symphonic cat finally out of the bag, his three remaining symphonies followed rather quickly. The second was completed one year later in 1877, the third in 1883, and the fourth in 1885. Johannes Brahms at 52. Brahms composed his fourth symphony in 1885 at the age of 52. 52! It's an age that I, for one, have long ago seen come and go. It's an age that we today consider youngish, during which we are in the prime of our lives, at the height of our powers. Today, our fifties are the new thirties, or so Oprah Winfrey would tell us. Brahms composed his fourth symphony in 1885 at the age of 52. 52. It's an age that I, for one, have long seen come and go. It's an age that we today consider youngish, during which we are in the prime of our lives, at the height of our powers. Today, our fifties are the new thirties, or so Oprah Winfrey would tell us. These are sentiments that Johannes Brahms did not share. In early May of 1883, he wrote a note to his friend, Dr. Theodore Billroth, quote, Hanslick, meaning Eduard Hanslick, the famed Viennese music critic, Hanslick and I, on Monday evening, want to have a little, small, sad festival together. Only you, Arthur Faber, and we too." Unquote. The sad festival Brahms referred to was his 50th birthday on May 7, 1883. Brahms, despite his robust good health, was feeling his years. As a student of music history, no one had to tell him that Beethoven had died at 56, Robert Schumann at 46, Frederick Chopin at 39, Felix Mendelssohn at 38, Mozart at 35, and Franz Schubert at 31. It didn't help that Brahms's friend, Dr. Theodore Billroth, claimed that in his scientific opinion, no artist could surpass himself after the age of 50. What it means is that by the time Brahms composed his Symphony No. 4 in 1885, at the age of 52, he had begun to believe that he was written out. Brahms, Symphony No. 4 in E minor, Opus 98, 1885. Brahms was deeply concerned about his fourth symphony. He was afraid that it was dry and pedantic, a fear reinforced by the tepid response of his friends when he played the symphony through for them on the piano. Brahms's pal, the writer and critic Max Kalbeck, went so far 
as to advise Brahms to toss the third movement entirely, convert the fourth movement into a self-standing orchestral work, and then compose entirely new third and fourth movements. That Brahms actually listened to such advice without tearing out Kalbeck's lungs testifies to his own doubts about the piece. Brahms even warned his publisher, Fritz Simrock, not to expect much from the symphony, writing, quote, I haven't the ghost of an idea whether I'll let the thing be printed. You'd be insane to invest a groschen, a dime, in it, unquote. It was all a useless lather, an epic waste of energy on Brahms's part. There was nothing wrong with this symphony number four. It is a masterwork and was greeted as such from the moment of its premiere. That premiere, which took place 136 years ago today in the central German city of Meiningen, under the baton of Brahms himself, was a triumph. The audience enthusiastically applauded every movement, followed by what one source calls a delirious ovation at its conclusion. The regular conductor of the Meiningen Court Orchestra, Hans von Bülow, immediately took the symphony on tour across Europe, and it became an instant favorite among audiences and musicians, and remains so to this day. In retrospect, we can see that Brahms's fears regarding the symphony were just another manifestation of his monumental, even destructive self-criticism, a lingering byproduct of the curse and what was his existential inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the music of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Schubert. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.